Good morning. <laughs> nice to see everyone. If you're uh, feeling homesick or missing our head Swami, Swami A, he'll be back this Thursday. But I wore one of his old hand-me-down shirts if you're feeling <laughs> sentimental. <laughs> so there he is. This morning's poem from Hafiz, it's called A Gigantic Ego. And it'll sort of lead into this morning's topic. The only problem with not castrating a gigantic ego is that it will surely become amorous and father a hundred screaming ideas and kids who will then all quickly grow up and skillfully proceed to run up every imaginable debt and complication of which your brain can conceive. This would concern normal parents and surely any seekers of freedom and the local merchants nearby as well, they could very easily become forced to disturb your peace. All those worries and all those bills could turn to wailing ghosts. The only problem with not lassoing a runaway ego is you just won't have much time to sing in this beautiful, sweet world. That, uh, that, that actually highlights one of the most, well, <laughs> one of the most reassuring things to me about spiritual life as you go on and as you practice is that all of these things slowly begin to reveal themselves as being true in your life. You know, I, I have to admit that there were some things that I gave up or some things that I've spent a number of years trying to walk away from that I just wasn't really sure <laughs> <laughs> that I wanted to walk away from them. It was just kind of a challenge, you know, not to turn around and not to run, run, back, uh, run back into it. And uh, one of the verses that Jesus uh, kind of put in my head as a young man, you know, is that he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. So I've always took that challenge, you know, and, and uh, even though I wasn't re- always real sure of the decisions I was making and real sure about the direction I was taking, uh, I, re- I went ahead and didn't dare, you know, <laughs> well, I maybe snuck a peek back, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't turn all the way back. So I'm, I'm hoping that was close enough. But uh, the delight is, is that these things really have turned out to be the biggest blessing in my life. Uh, I, I'm so happy that it's only taken, what, 16 years for me to be able to say that, for me to feel confident that, yes, my uh, joining a monastery and uh, jumping cold turkey into a rather bizarre uh, life and a rather bizarre philosophy has been a delightful and a wonderful thing. And I've learned a lot along the way, and I want to share some of those things and, uh, and really just take the opportunity to revel in them, really. I hope that they're helpful to you. I hope that you enjoy them as much as I have and as much as I do. But the point this morning, of course, always is to spend time with Ma, with, with God, with your divine Ishta, your highest ideal, and to let the mind sit there uh, in, a, in a comfort and in a sweetness uh, to enjoy that space. And in that space, Mother can teach us whatever she wants to teach us. So let's dig into some of the scriptures and some of the ideals after we remember our three most important things at the feet of Thakur here. The most important thing as a seeker, all of you know, honestness, I heard it, honestness and sincerity. Well, no, not, not well, honestness is one of them. Earnestness. earnestness and sincerity. Yeah, so earnestness and sincerity. Why? Because Takor promises that if you are earnest and sincere, he'll take care of the rest. Even if you make a crazy turn and start running down the wrong alley, he'll get you out. The second is like it is that commitment to truth. It's an inner integrity very important as spiritual seekers to maintain that inner integrity, that those things that you think in your philosophy are the things that come out of your mouth are the things that are done by your hands and your feet, that you live according to the things you speak and that you believe the things that you say and that you propose. And that's very that's a very important point for this morning's lecture, so we're going to hold that one out there, that, that inner integrity. It explains a lot in the dilemma we're going to try and undo. And the third is from uh, our beloved Jesus when he says, love, love each other. The golden rule, love each other, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know that uh, that is the practice, and that that's the measure for how successful you are as a seeker. Are you unselfish? Are you unselfish? And so, really, if we take those three things, we don't need any lectures. We don't need anything uh, except for just uh, giving me the opportunity to do something I enjoy. (laughs) So I'm going to jump into that this morning. It was pointed out to me yesterday in our kitchen in the monastery by one of uh, our very dear brothers here that there's a little bit of a dilemma in, uh, in in one of the teachings between Vivekananda and his teacher, Ramakrishna, they seem to give uh, uh, disparate advice to us as seekers. And it has to do with Advaita uh, versus dualism, a god with form versus a god without form, and uh, how, to, how to maneuver that. And uh, we had a very short conversation about it, but it set me into thinking quite a bit in the afternoon as to, to uh, what to do with that dilemma. Because it's very true, I've noticed that uh, Americans or people here in the West love Advaita. Many come to Vedanta because of the idea of Advaita, where there's no personal God. You know, they can throw that whole, all that baggage overboard and not worry about it anymore. And it's very intellectually satisfying. It's very emotionally satisfying. You get to throw away all the scary nuns from your youth beating your hands with rulers and and finally have your vengeance by, you know, I knew you weren't there watching everything that I was doing. I'm free, I'm free. And uh, uh, Vivekananda played on that. You know, you read, his, you read his, his lectures here in the West, and he says things uh, like that, uh, like here in one of his letters to a brother disciple. He says, give up any identification with this body. Stand up. Everything is. Cherish positive thoughts. By dwelling too much on not this, not this, it is not, it is not. He says, the whole world is going into ruin. It should be so hum, so hum, Shiva hum. I am he, I am he, I am Shiva. What a botheration, this negativity. In every soul is infinite strength, and you should turn yourselves, that you should turn yourselves into cats and dogs by harboring negative thoughts. Who dares to preach this negativism? Who do you call weak and powerless? Shivo hum, Shivo hum. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. I feel as if a thunderbolt strikes me on the head when I hear people dwell on negative thoughts. That sort of self-deprecating attitude is another form of disease. Do you call that humility? It is vanity in disguise. The external badge does not confer spirituality. It is same-sightedness to all beings, which is the test of a liberated soul. I am he, I am Shiva, the essence of knowledge and bliss. That's just one of probably a dozen places that, that he sings the glory of that oneness, that uniting I am that, I am that, I am that. But then the master comes in and, and equally as many times in the, uh, in the gospel says, so long as we have a body and so long as we are deluded by the idea of our identity with that body, So long as we have five senses and see the external world, we must have a personal God. For if we have all these ideas, we must take, as the great Ramanuja has proved, all the ideas about God and nature and the individualized soul. When you take the one, you have to take the whole triangle. You cannot avoid it. Therefore, as long as you see the external world to avoid a personal God and a personal soul, is errant lunacy. But there may be times in the lives of great sages, and he goes on to talk about the great sages that transcend the mind and go beyond that. But he's telling you, you know, these are the, these are the things. As long as you think that you've got a body, so if you showered this morning, that includes you. <laughs> so long as you're looking through the world, uh, looking at the world through your senses, and if you manage to make it through one of the doors into the auditorium, that includes you. So if you're seeing this external world and you're seeing yourself as a body and you believe yourself to be acting in this world, if you see yourself as the one that moves your arm up to scratch your nose, you know, which means that you didn't go, oh, thank you, God, when that happens. If you didn't thank the Lord when you scratched your nose, then this includes you. 
So for us, most of us, I I assume, I've got us all in the basket now, (laughs) for us to go and to to, to expect to practice uh, this idea of, of universal unity or the God alone exists and all else is unreal, God one without a second. Uh, for us to actually practice that, to actually hold that as an ideal that we think we believe in our mind and yet then to subsequently carry on a day-to-day life makes us a lunatic. <laughs> really, it makes, you, it makes you quite crazy because there's no way that you can live in a way that validates this oneness, this idea of God, one without a second, I am that. You know, if you, if you, when you start, uh, the one thing in Vedanta is, is whenever you start a conversation, you have to decide where you're going to put that first tack in the map because from that first tack will determine all the things that you're allowed to say. If you put that tack in at Advaita, you've got nothing else to say. <laughs> you, you can't talk about it. You can't argue about it. You can't discuss it if you're proposing it as, as what your real belief system is. I, I believe in Advaita. I really believe that. If you believe that, if you're not sitting there, forgive me, sitting there drooling in ecstasy, that's not the path. That's at the end of the path. That's the goal. It is the ultimate truth. But Takor makes a recommendation. He says to take your Advaita, take this idea of this oneness, and tie it in the corner of your dhoti. I didn't know until I started wearing a dhoti why he would ever say that. (laughs) It's because you ain't got no pockets. (laughs) So if you're going to carry something, it's tied in the corner of your dhoti. Or if I'm going to carry it, it's rolled up in the waistband up here in the top, you know, held in there. So uh, it's one of the reasons that I change into pants when I get in the car, because I have no place for a wallet and my keys and my whatnots. So take this idea, this oneness. He's not saying that it's not true. You know, he's just saying to be, be careful about practicing it. Uh, he clarifies, he being Ramakrishna, uh, clarifies. He says, I am he. It's true. I am the pure self. That is the conclusion of the Ganis. But the bhaktas, the lovers of God, they say the whole universe is the glory of God. Who would recognize a wealthy man without his power and his riches? But it is quite different when God himself, gratified by the aspirant's devotion, says to him, you are the same as myself. Then he tells this little story. He says, suppose a king is seated in his court and his cook enters the hall and sits on the throne, kicks up his feet and says, oh, king, you and I, yeah, we're the same. We got it going on. People will certainly turn their eyes up at him and call him a madman. But suppose one day the king, pleased with the cook's service, says to him, come, come sit beside me here. He says, well, then there is nothing wrong in that. There is no difference between you and me. Then if the cook sits on the throne with the king, there's no harm in it. It is not good for ordinary people to say, I am he. The waves belong to the water, but does the water belong to the waves? So he's saying that it's actually a danger for those for ordinary people. I know that none of us fall into that category. I know that all of us are extraordinary first place individuals. (laughs) But being here amongst the common company of other first place extraordinary originals, uh, we're going to kind of have to change that bar and and just say we're ordinary folks. And because we're ordinary folks, Takur is saying that we don't have the right yet to say, I am he, that that it's not a healthy thing. And uh, he gives this example here of the cook. You know, if someone comes up and sits on the throne without due respect, without due understanding, without a a due appreciation for what is being done and what what the implications are, he doesn't belong there. You know, he doesn't belong there. He needs to, you can only sit there at the invitation of the king. And so Takur is saying that it's a dangerous practice for you to go around, I am he, I am he, I am that, I am that, because you probably don't understand the implications of that. You probably don't understand the due process of that. You probably haven't let go of all the things that you need to let go of inside in order to get away with doing that. Now, there's one exception to that story which, which pours into my mind at this moment, uh, and that was this video of the Pope. Do you remember it went viral a few, I guess it was last year when he first got into, got into office. Anyway, it was without context. I saw it on YouTube. But he stands up, the papal chair, you know, you know papal chairs are they're grandiose chairs. And so it was sitting there. He stands up and goes to the mic, and this young kid 
I, who knows where he came from, off stage, on the stage, something. This young kid of like four or five years old comes out of nowhere behind him, walks over, and has to climb up because the papal chair literally comes up. He's climbing up, climbs up and sits in the papal chair with his feet sticking straight out, you know, and his arms up on the arms. And he's just sitting there, and it's all happening in the background. The Pope is just going on and talking. And that's all the video. You don't see what the reaction is. You, probably, probably a team of cops swoop in and body slam him down and arrest him. But <laughs> I only saw the cute part. So if you become like a child, if you become like a child and wander into Papa's chair and sit on it of your own accord like that, that's another way of doing it. Because in that way, you also don't understand the profundity of what you're doing you also don't understand the implications of what you're doing. But in that sense, you've lost all sense of ego. You're sitting in a chair, you know, Papa's chair. And so you can get away with it in that essence, in that way also. But that's the path of bhakta. We hate that or not, don't hate that. Gyanis often will poo-poo that. I have a friend, Philip, I won't, <laughs> who I talk about all the time, who who definitely has a condescending attitude toward my devotion and my little practices of love and warmth and fuzzy feelings in Hafiz. But nonetheless, uh, it's that feeling that, that empowers a young boy to sit in the Pope's chair and to get away with it. The only other way to get away with it is to go spend a significant amount of time in the mountains away from everywhere. Because Takur says, frankly, this day and time, uh, we worship the stomach. We have to work 10, 12 hours a day just, just to pay the bills. And if you're out there in a world that's built on duality, working in an office that requires duality to function, to build a product and to sell a product, and you're working with a whole team of people who are squarely rooted in duality, you're, you don't have the time for the practice these days. You know, for that, to take, to take that practice, to take the path of a jnani, and to realize your oneness with the universe and take the path of an Advaitic, for an Advaitic understanding... You know, realistically, and of course there's exceptions to all of this, and you can counter it if you'd like. It's certainly free for you to do so. But you're going to need eight, six, eight, ten hours a day of meditation time to get the mind to slow down to that point to where you can slow one thought down enough to separate it from the next thought and to get enough time to look between them to see God. It's doable, sure. The scriptures talk about it. The yoga, you know, the, the many of the yoga, the yoga of Shishta and others talk about that practice. But it's a practice that Takur says we don't have time for it these days. The world isn't constructed around that. You're not going to be able to get that kind of focus, that kind of discipline, that kind of time for practice. And so he points us to this bhakti idea. He says, uh, you know, and he, he makes the point that it's because the waves belong to the water, but the water doesn't belong to the waves. So what does that mean? That means that water can exist without waves, but waves can't exist without the water. So the wave doesn't have the right to stay. I am the thing. And so Takur's saying that, understand that about yourself. As long as you believe yourself to be this, you know, as long as you're showering and taking care of this thing and feeding it and going along and making friends, understand that in that state, you belong to God, yes, yes indeed. But, you know, you are of that but God is not you. Because when you have that ego down here in this realm, in this space, and you use the word I, chances are you don't draw to mind a formless, infinite being of love in full potential. Chances are you mean this 51-year-old thing, you know, that climbed out of bed like a snake this morning, you know. It's, it's, that's the idea we have of self. And if you take that I as your seed and then you identify it with God, I am God, I am that, I am that, what you do is you create a very smug uh, attitude or ego for yourself. Your ego, your errant ego gets bigger. And then you begin to think that you have the ability or the right to choose truth, to sort truth from the scriptures and say, oh, this one is mine and this one isn't mine. And then you think that you have privileges, you know, because of your greatness and because of your understanding of yourself as the one, you know, that you have privileges and you have rights of that office. And pretty soon you fall to ruin with that kind of thinking. You know, that's the cook that comes barging into the throne room, <laughs> goes up and sits on the throne and kicks his feet up, you know, and ultimately gets his ear pulled by the Holy Mother. You know, uh, so he says that you have to understand your place in this universe. 
that 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 uh, just uh, buying into Advaita because it's a very intellectual and very satisfying philosophy, uh, that it can't be your practice, that you have to go through another set of practices first to purify that inner world. He says, uh, even even uh, even uh, Vivekananda, he writes a letter to uh, Josephine McLeod, and he's talking about this woman that he met, Madame Sterling. He saw her in the street, and he says, she doesn't come anymore to my lectures. Well, good for her. Too much philosophy isn't good anyway. <laughs> So that's, you know, quite often if you, that love of Advaita, that love of that practice is a love of philosophy. And it's very satisfying to sit there and churn those words, you know, together for an hour, uh, talking about the implications and, you know, running into that wall where nothing can be said a few times. It it can be a lot of fun. But Thomas Merton warns us, he's a monk from the, the Trappist monk. He says, a purely mental life may be destructive if it leads us to substitute thought for life, and ideas for action. The activity proper to man is not purely mental, because man is not just a disembodied mind. Our destiny is to live out what we think, because unless we live out what we know, we do not even know it. It is only by making our knowledge part of ourselves through action that we enter into the reality that is signified by our concepts. So he's saying, he's giving us an added little picture there, you know, that, that your religion, your philosophy, this life, it's not a matter of satisfying mental gyrations, you know, it's like, oh, I understand my place in the world, good for me, you know, whatever. It's not name dropping, it's not knowing who said what, it's not knowing the implications of this scripture on this scripture, it's your life. It's, it's how much love you emulate, how unselfish you are, and that, that's for everyone. You know, Vivekananda says, that's, that's for everyone. That's the measure of, of your spiritual life. So don't trade in uh, this, the potential of this life for being a beautiful gate of manifestation, manifest, manifesting uh, your ridiculously awesome nature, <laughs> your beautiful, beautiful ability to love endlessly. Don't trade that for a life, uh, replacing it with just thoughts and ideas and pleasant philosophies and, and academic uh, you know, gyrations. Don't take satisfaction in those things. He comes down, uh, and uh, this one of the devotees of uh, Vivekananda, Viraja, Viraja Devi, she says in her reminiscences of him, she says, once after being quiet for some time, Swamiji said, Madam, be broad-minded. Always see two ways. When I am on the heights, I say, I am he. And when I have a stomach ache, I say, Mother, have mercy on me. Always see these two ways. On another occasion, he said, learn to be the witness. If there are two dogs fighting in the street and I go out there, I get mixed up in the fight. But if I stay quietly in my room, I witness the fight from the window. So learn to be a witness. So this is, he's giving us a key here to how to how to practice this idea of putting advaita in the corner of your dhoti he's going to give us some insight here on how to live how to use that tool why we keep it in our pocket why we just don't set it on the shelf and forget about it because we're not ready for it he says no 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 don't do that don't throw it away it's not that it's not true it's not that that's not the ultimate realization he's saying but just just hold on to it and just keep it with you just know that it's there you just just put it in put it in that pocket, and understand that. Hold that. So and then serve mother, or or father, or brother, or son, or daughter. However you see God, you know. Take this knowledge of Advaita. Understand that yes, this is the ultimate truth. And then worship God, because you believe you have a body. So believe in a personal God, and it's not an imaginary thing. You know, even Takor, Takor says that, that, yes, Advaita is true. Yes, the final realization put him into ecstasy for six months where he couldn't move. He laid, laid on the ground, being force-fed by the devotees to keep him alive. That's the, state of, that's the state of Advaita, you know, to know that, to know that oneness, to have that oneness. You're non-functional because what's there to do in one without a second? But he is saying that even in that reality, even though that was the highest reality he had, that he knew that to be the truth, he came back down and he worshipped mother. And he saw Kali. It wasn't like he had to pretend Kali was there. 
He says that that devotion in you, that love for God, crystallizes this oneness, crystallizes this 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 uh, ever-present being into form, into a form that can reflect to you your highest ideal of love. So if it's a, if it's if it's you know if you're raised as in, a, in a Christian household, uh, quite quite likely that that crystallization looks a lot like Jesus, you know, brings you that heart. And through that heart, you can have that realization. You can see that through the multiple Christian uh, saints who have seen God and experienced this unity, you know, that write about it, uh, this beautiful union with the beloved, with the bridegroom that they talk about. That their faith, that their understanding crystallizes God into that truth, and they experience God that way. You know, for you, a child of the mother, you may see God may crystallize into that form of the master or crystallize into the form of the mother or even Vivekananda to meet you, you know, when, when, you, when that idea is strong enough and, and hot enough in you or cold enough, I guess, if it's going to freeze, freeze, to freeze God into that form. So it's not that you have to be a child and pretend something is real until you can understand the highest. It's that God is willing to meet you wherever you are. And if you have a body and you're stuck in this level of delusion and you're paying for your, your desires every day through the suffering that you're going and through the temporary happiness that keeps sliding between your fingers, God's not just going to stand off at a great distance and say, I'm one. <laughs> you know, I'm one. I can't touch you. I have no hands. I'm one giant, one without a second. He doesn't do that. He comes down and becomes human for you to meet you there at a place that you can understand, to give you an artwork of love that you can appreciate, that you can, that you can bank on, that you can stand with and feel that inspiration. So God becomes this personal God for you, crystallizes into that form to bring you forward, to give you a hand to hold on to, to give you a face to talk to, you know, to cry to, to yell at. <laughs> maybe someone to smack around a little. I don't know. Whatever your relationship is with, with the divine. He loves to wrestle, by the way. He challenged quite a few people in the gospel to a good wrestling match. They didn't win, but he, uh, he challenged them. So encourage that. So what he's proposing, for, or this, this part is a giant fish that's mostly head and tail. <laughs> so I'm going to warn you on this. These are, this is a composite of what, of what occurred to my mind. Of course, I was praying putting it together so I hope it's accurate on on what is what is the the way to think of this advaita and we come up with this the master says it is good to look on god as the master and oneself as his servant you know he recommends that he says as long as a man feels the body to be real as long as he is conscious of i and you it is good to keep the relationship of master and servant it's not good to keep the idea of i am he and so someone mentions uh, a woman, and he says, no, I don't know that person, but from what you say, it seems to me that she has a desire for name and fame. That kind of egotism is not good, and that's, that's the kind of egotism that's tempted to say, I am one, that I am he. He says, the feeling I am the doer is the outcome of ignorance, but the feeling of God does everything is due to knowledge. God alone is the doer. So God, this is one of the practices. So you, you see God. God is real as a personal God. He manifests because of your devotion, because of your love. And in that interaction, one of your practices is that he's taking care of everything for you, that he's the doer. Why? Because that's one characteristic of the ultimate, of the higher truth. God is one without a second, is that there's no you to do all this thing. There's no you with an ego to compel you to seek your desires, you know, to, to squelch your suffering so in that he's taking you just one notch higher so okay be there think yourself as a body but practice seeing god as the doer kind of recognize those things in your life uh, that aren't that that god is doing that you think you're doing and this is an interesting point because uh this is one of the hardest things to do in a practice i mean it's not to think that god is the doer that i'm just a machine that god's actually doing everything i mean that's impossible almost to think of that but if you look at your life, and I'm curious if you don't, if you don't come up with this conclusion, I, I'm curious to chat with you about it. Uh, if you look at your life, is your life today what you've been planning on from, from the beginning? I mean, are you, is this what you saw when you were 12 and you were like, when I grow up, 
I'm going to do this. I'm going to be this. Because I know for me that I couldn't be farther from where I shot that arrow. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I, that arrow, when I shot it, it, it went... It went that way. I mean, it went, it went behind me. It went the opposite direction. And I've ended up in a life uh, uh, that I can't explain. I, I cannot draw a trajectory from any part of my earlier life that, that, that puts the arrow here that, at a podium talking to you guys about this this morning. There's no way. And yet, at each of the adjustments, you know, before I came to Takor and, and heard somebody say, I'm not the doer, I adjusted my thinking at each turn, you know, like <laughs> when life came out completely different or took me in a completely different segment, I took the new segment and I just accepted it. And as still, as if I'm the one in control, I immediately just started making different plans. You know, it's like, oh, okay, that didn't work out. Not thinking, oh, look, somebody else must be in charge or somebody else must be doing something. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that. I'm, now I've got to do this. <laughs> so I get busy planning out my next five years. And then those five years passed, and I, I still wasn't where I shot the arrow. But your mind keeps changing and keeps creating a story that tells you you're in control. And you require that. You feel very uncomfortable when you begin to suspect that you're not in charge especially when you don't know who is. <laughs> You're like, what's happening here? So we fight. We fight to keep that idea. And Thakur is saying, to get to Advaita, to get to that highest understanding, do that first. So if you want to be an Advaitist, see God as doing everything. And sit and think about the implications of that. Sit and think about the implications of that. Because you will lose yourself in that ideal. It's a beautiful place to go. So when you have a vertical relationship, okay, when you, when you practice this vertical relationship, you and God, you should stick with duality. You should be honest. That truth that we talked about, that inner integrity. Because none of us really thinks that we're God. And none of us really understands what it means to say, I am that, I am that one. So be honest about that. Be realistic about that. And come down from this high, this high academic wonderland of very satisfying ideas and admit that you're here, that you've got ears and eyes, a nose and a mouth, and use that because you believe in it to develop a relationship with this divinity, with this God, and practice things along the way that point toward that Advaita without getting you trapped <laughs> half-ripe in that notion of Advaita, See God as the doer. Fill, fill your heart with a temple, with a shrine, where you keep getting smaller and smaller, and the wonder and glory of the divinity that you're worshiping in there gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and gets so thin and so non-present in that space that you're literally the paint on the walls because there's no more room in the heart except for that divinity, that God. Do that, and little by little you will approach that Advaita, you know, but always start. Start where you are. Be honest where you are. So if you're dealing up and down, if you're dealing in a vertical relationship, uh, then uh, deal with duality. Approach God as his servant, as his, as his child, as his lover, as his mother, however you, you choose to see that or have that relationship. So approach God that way. And then we're going to get to Vivekananda here. When you're dealing with horizontal relationships... Go full out Advaita. Go full out Advaita. And what does that mean? He says, whatever you believe that you will be, if you believe yourselves to be sages, sages you will be tomorrow. There is nothing to obstruct you. If there is one common doctrine that runs through all the apparently fighting and contradictory sects, it is that all glory, all power, and all purity are within the soul already. All admit the truth that the power is there, potential or manifest, it is there. And the sooner that you believe that, the better for you. All power is within you. You can do anything, you can do everything. Believe in that. And do not believe that you are weak. Do not believe that you are half-crazy lunatics, as most of us do nowadays. You can do anything and everything without even the guidance of anyone. All power is there. Stand up and express that divinity within you. 
So in that sense, when you're dealing in this world, in this plane, on, these hor- on this horizontal level, when you're dealing with your fellow man, when you're dealing with your daily uh, duties and the things you have to carry through, yes, take on those characteristics of the divine. You know, in that sense, I am strong. I am strength itself. I am power itself. I am love itself. I am enthusiasm itself. I'm alive. I'm, I'm, I'm beautiful. <laughs> you know, take that ideal and run with it. Do that. He says this ideal of faith in ourselves is the greatest help. If faith in ourselves had been more extensively taught and practiced, I am sure a very large portion of the evils and miseries that we have would have vanished. Throughout the history of mankind, if any motive power has been more potent than, en- than another in the lives of all great men and women, it is that of the faith in themselves, born with the consciousness that they are to be great, to become great. He is an atheist who does not believe in himself. The old religion said that he is an atheist who did not believe in God, but the new religion, the new religion says that he is an atheist who does not believe in himself. But it is not selfish faith, because the Vedanta, again, is the doctrine of oneness. It means faith in all, because you are all. Love for yourself means love for all, love for animals, love for everything, for you are all one. It is the great faith which will make the world better. So when you're dealing with the world, when you're dealing with people, and that my famous, my favorite person behind the counter at Starbucks then it's time to emphasize your Advaita. At that time, it's time to see yourself as one, that your self-respect is your respect for them, your love for yourself is your love for them, your confidence with yourself is your confidence with them, your desire to be the best you can be is your ability to inspire them to be the best they can be. So in this, in, to, to, to traverse this, this path that we're on, and trying to figure out what is up and down, Takor's saying, yes, the ultimate truth is, in fact, that God is one without a second, that he is that, the only thing, that has not been polluted by the tongue, that thing which has not been trapped in in a a, uh, uh, description, you know, not, not limited in any way, that God is pure and infinite. So hold that knowledge, hold that knowledge squarely in your pocket, and carry on your daily life worshiping him for that hugeness and that immensity, but living as if you're a manifestation of his child in this world, honoring him, worshiping him, so that you can reduce this idea of ego, this fallible idea of a finite self, so that you can break that down, whittle it away until it's small enough for you to let go of. And then you drop into Advaita backwards. (laughs) You drop into Advaita backwards. It's never, a, it's never a propulsion of the mind. It's never the outcome of thinking. It's never the outcome of understanding because the mind simply can't, simply cannot. It is not a tool that's able to conceive of that divinity. So you back into it by understanding that God is that and that relationship with him is growing and building and that notion of that self within you is expanding and that notion of the smaller self is getting smaller. He says, uh, when you tie something in your in your uh, dhoti, there's another story that he talks about. Uh, the uh, a man who wanted to cross the sea from Ceylon to India, Bibishana. He said to them, Bibishana wanted to cross the sea to get to Ceylon from India. And so he was told, uh, tie this thing in the corner of your wearing cloth and you will cross that sea safely. You'll be able to walk on the water, but be sure not to examine it or you will sink. The man was walking easily on the sea was with such a strength of faith that when having gone a part of the way out there, he thinks, gosh, what a wonderful thing Pipishana has given me, you know, in, to tie in my dhoti, that I can even walk on water. What is this thing? So he takes his dhoti up and he unties the knot and he founds only, finds only a leaf with the name of Rama written on it. Oh, only that, he thought, and he instantly sinks in the water. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that's interesting. So this is another time when he's t- told somebody to take something and tie it in the corner of your dhoti, but don't examine it because you'll be undone by it. So I think, that's, I think there's a big crossover here. I'm not going to say this story is about that, 
although you could argue that. Uh, so taking this Advaita and putting it in the corner of your doti means just leave it there as a matter of faith, a matter of understanding that this is the truth of the matter. But use the faith that you have in that then to cross the sea, you know, to keep walking across the ocean. And the faith in that is that I am that great strength. You know, I can walk, I can walk on water. Check it out. <laughs> Here I'm doing it, you know. To have that, to have that attitude, build all of your attitudes on that notion of oneness. Build all your attitudes on that faith that God is everywhere and every being and everything. And then march happily along the water. But don't open that leaf and start trying to understand it. Because in your current state of walking a body across water, it's not going to, it's not going to increase your faith in self. It's not going to give you an understanding of the non-existence of ego, you know, or the pain of ego. It's going to cause a lot of confusion, and uh, you make a lot of odd decisions along the way. So just keep it tied there and keep walking on in faith. I was reading a book uh, in the hours of meditation. Actually, I was walking with a devotee from Providence this week, and she was reading this book and read this page to me. And I wanted to include it... (laughs) Uh, because that's the way I think Mother does things. She wanted me to share it, so she read it to me. It says, In the hours of meditation, the soul speaking to itself says, Peace dwells in silence. And to gain peace, you must be strong, and the silence comes when the tumult of sense has been drowned in the powerful stillness of renunciation. You are a wanderer in the desert of this world. Tarry not, lest you perish by the wayside. Make your caravan of good thought and provide yourself with the waters of a living faith. Beware of all mirages. The goal is not there. Do not be deceived by the attraction of externals. Renouncing all, go by those paths which lead you into the solitude of your own insight. Follow not the man caught within the net of manifoldness. Go along the paths whereby saints have journeyed alone and separately to that goal of oneness. Then he gives us a list here of things. Dare to be brave. Dare to be brave. Conquest lies in making the initial effort. Because that's all we're ever doing, is making the initial effort. Because every moment is new. Every moment has never been experienced before. So keep making that initial effort. Keep making that initial effort. Do not waver. Don't forget. Don't become unsteady. Plunge into sanctity. Just jump into it. Jump into this notion. Because the promise that God makes is that it's well worth it. It's well worth it. That even though at this time, with our attachments and our desires, our loves, our inspirations, it seems hard to put them down because we can't imagine something more valuable than them. It's hard to put them down because we can't imagine them being okay without us. But don't waver. Put them down. Mother's been taking care of them the whole time because you are not the doer. She took care of you before your family. She'll take care of you after your family. She took care of you before your husband and your wife. She'll take care of you after your husband and your wife. She took care of you before your job. She'll take care of you after your job. You're not the doer. Practice this and plunge into that sanctity. With one mad leap, drown yourself in this ocean of God. Divinity is the end. In the nature of things, there could be none other for you, you shining ray of the effulgent one. Ramakrishna sings a song about this faith, this, this well, this faith, this part of you, this uh, what is that verse that we talked about faith? It's that that uh, intuitive understanding of an eternal relationship that you have with something you don't know, something that you can't name or describe, but inside you there's just a knowing that there's something, that there's something bigger, something more. And one of the indications of this, again, is to bring our minds back to just being aware because life will teach you all of these things. All of these things are perfectly in line with what life teaches if you're paying attention. You know? that's, why the, that's why you need to cl- clear the minds so that you can see clearly when life teaches you these things. 
that this faith, that this, that this understanding, that there's something infinite, something bigger in there, the proof of that is that our mind can only see things that it's familiar with. It can only know things that it's familiar with, right? I learned this actually in eighth grade, eighth grade art. <laughs> A teacher said, I, your homework tonight is for you to go home and to think of something you can do with a tire that has never been done before. A piece of art or, or a use for a tire, for a car tire. That's all, well, that'll take 10 seconds. <laughs> I went home and I thought, and I thought, and I thought. And I, it's like a planter. No, I've seen a planter. A swing, no, I've seen a swing. You know, shoot, no, I've seen shoes. You know, to try and come up with something new, something that had never been done before, something I had never seen before, turned out to be a nearly impossible task because the mind just regurgitates. It just regurgitates and throws things, all your attachments back at you, basically. It just digs through your memories, rifles through there, and says, oh, I'll use this one. And, uh, but yet, we have a notion of infinity. How is it that we have a notion of infinity? We've never seen anything infinite. We can't point at anything that would have suggested the notion of infinity to us. Everything we've ever seen has a size, a limit, and a boundary. Everything. And yet we know instinctively that there's this thing called infinite. We've never seen anything that's immortal. We haven't seen anything in this world at all that would suggest the idea of immortality to us. And yet we know there's something immortal. How is that? If it hasn't been given to us through this side... It's been given through us. <laughs> how do you, how do you uh, charade <laughs> inside? It's your nature. That's how the scriptures know. That's, that's what they tell you. That's how you know that these things are real. Because it's your nature. You are infinite. That's why you know what infinite is. You are immortal. That's why you know what immortality is. You have a soul. You are a soul. That's how you know that there's something in you that lasts beyond death. That's why when you see that corpse, you can see clearly that your friend is not there anymore. You can see it. The moment that, that the spirit leaves the body, the very moment that the spirit leaves the body, even if that body is laying there exactly as it was laying there when it was alive, you can tell immediately that thing is not my friend. My friend is not there anymore. You know these things instinctively. They're truths about yourself. This is that Advaita. <laughs> and this is keeping it in the corner of your, of your dhoti, knowing that these things are true. But going along this life and being honest with where you're at, building that relationship with that divine, accepting the idea of a personal God who is indeed very personal, who is indeed taking the form that you need, taking the ideas that you are generating, that you understand at this level of your life, at this particular point in your growth. He's reflecting back to you that perfect ideal as pure as you can manage it at this moment. And he's big enough so that next year, when we give this lecture again, <coughs> your idea of God will be bigger. And his manifestation of that to you will be bigger in you. And ultimately, it will become the only thing that you experience, the only thing that you see, the only thing that you talk to and that you interact with. Because God is that. And on that final day, it will be the thing that you drop off into, into that infinite self. You know, when you're ready to let go of this notion of smallness. It is in love's elixir only that he delights, O oh mind, he dwells in the body's inmost depths in everlasting joy. And for that love, the mighty yogis practice yoga from age to age. When love awakes, the Lord, like a magnet, draws him to the soul. He it is, says Ram Prasad, that I approach as mother. But must I give away the secret here in the marketplace? For the hints I have given, O oh mind, guess what that being is.
here soar, not with wings, but with your moving hands and feet and sweating brows, standing by your beloved side, reaching out to comfort this world with your cup of solace drawn from your vast reservoir of truth. Here soar, not with eyes and senses that turn their backs on the earth's sweet stumbling dance which needs you. No, here love, oh here love, with your mouth tender and open upon your lover and with your heart on duty to the souls of rivers and children, animals, all the shy feathered ones and the laughing, jumping, shining fish. Oh, here, pilgrim, love on this holy battleground of life, where there are bleeding men who are calling for a sacred drink, for a gentle word or the touch from man or God. <coughs> Hafiz, why just serve and play with angels? They are already content. Brew your knowledge well for men with aching minds and guts. And for those wayfarers who have gained the rare courageous thirsts that can never be relinquished until union. Hafiz, leave your recipes in golden drums and tie those barrels to the backs of camels who will keep circumambulating the world, giving nourishment to all the tender, wondrous spheres. Oh, here, love. Oh, love, right here. Find your happiness, dear wayfarer, with your beautiful lips and your body so sweetly opened, yielding their vital gifts upon this magnificent earth. That's the power of faith in Advaita. That's the battery that you keep tied in your dhoti as you explore and probe and find the oneness that you've forgotten and have it reprove itself to you as that infinite being. But never do it for yourself, for those things of the mind that are already content. Do it for the Lord around you. Live your life for the aching and for the hurting. Let's be what we know religion is. Let's have that realization. Let's talk about it and share it with each, each other. Let's jump madly into that sanctity. Take a few minutes to think. <clears throat>